um, I think it was Picasso who said that, you know, to create something, you first have to destroy something. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this series episode of the VocTech podcast, Learning Continued, which seeks to explore the intersection of adult learning and tech. A big shout out to UFI Charitable Trust and UFI Ventures who made this new series possible. You can follow online at hashtag VocTech and at Podcast EdTech. Right, this week I'm in conversation with Steve Wheeler, author of Digital Learning in Organisations. For anyone who's in the digital learning space, no doubt you're familiar with Steve. For those of you who aren't, buckle up and listen in to hear some legacy tales about educational technology, training and assessment and how we might move things forward. This was one of my favourite series recordings made under the dappled light of an apple tree in Steve's dad's garden in Plymouth in the United Kingdom. And I encourage each of you to check out Ken's Facebook blog on his wartime adventures, which I'll throw in the show notes alongside the link to Steve's latest book and all the references from this episode. I hope you enjoy. And if you'd like to be included in the next episode in our listener feature, just say hello, who you are and what you do in our 90 second voicemail platform at speakpipe.com forward slash the EdTech podcast. Okay, here we go. I'm really, really genuinely deeply delighted to be here because I'm sat in a wonderful English garden just outside of Plymouth city centre, surrounded by flowers and in the sunshine and I'm here with Steve Wheeler so welcome Steve. Hi Sophie nice to be here. And we're in your your father's garden and it's absolutely delightful we're kind of in the dappled light under an apple tree so. Yeah you can reach up and pick the apples can't you from here? You could I'm going to let them grow a bit bigger. I I would they're a bit sour at the moment I think. Yeah but just for our listeners if anyone's been kind of living under a rock or anything like that As an introduction, so Steve Wheeler is a learning innovations consultant and former associate professor of learning technologies at the Plymouth Institute of Education, where he chaired the Learning Futures Group and led the computing and science education teams. He continues to research into technology-supported learning and distance education with particular emphasis on the pedagogy underlying the use of social media and Web 2.0 technologies and also has research interests in mobile learning and cyber cultures. He has given keynotes to audiences in more than 35 countries and is author of over 150 scholarly articles with more than 7,300 academic citations. An active and prolific edgy blogger, his blog Learning With Ease is a regular online commentary on the social and and cultural impact of disruptive technologies and the application of digital media in education, learning and development. In the last few years, it has attracted 8.5 million unique visitors. And Steve's latest book, which I'm about a third of the way through, is Digital Learning in Organisations Help Your Workforce Capitalise on Technologies which is absolutely perfect for our new series. So welcome again. (laughs) Thank you very much. That sounds a bit like me, what you just read there. (laughs) I think it's off uh, my blog site, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Just uh, a copy and paste, uh, the worst kind. But, uh, (laughs) you know, over the next 30 minutes, hopefully we'll kind of fill in all the gaps as well. So, Steve, we met for the second time last week during the Learning um, Technology Summer Forum. And I was lucky enough to buy one of said books. What I thought 
that I've really enjoyed about it is it's full of personal anecdotes, which I love. And one early on in the book is about your fledgling career as a marmalade maker. (laughs) So can you expand for our listeners what the underlying message was on training being an investment versus a cost in, in your experience there? Well, I mean, you know the story about the two managers outside the the boardroom, and one says, you know, this training training's really expensive. You know, what if we train them all up and they leave? And the other one looked at him and said, what if we don't and they stay? You know, it's it's a kind of you know how much cost is ignorance over over what we we should know as uh, as as employees. And and I think I made the point last week when I was talking about personalised learning in at the summer forum in in London that actually our whole point about training is to invest in your your most important asset which is human capital surely i mean if you can't see that then maybe you shouldn't be in business so you know i think people are the most important part of society they're the most important part it's it's we do everything for people don't we really and and if we if we don't invest in people if we don't train them up if we don't help them to learn if we don't give them the opportunities to get the best performance out of themselves then, then what are we doing in business what are we doing in education mm-hmm. so the story about the marmalade maker it was me i was the marmalade you know i was supposed to be on this production line you know making marmalade by taking whole huge cans of orange pulp and shoving them into a, a, a vat and then it was being wheeled away and then i'd start all over again and the whole point of that was yes it was dull work i was only a kid at the time i was still at college and i was trying to earn a few extra quid during the summer holidays but they didn't tell me the whole story. They told me half the story. And when I opened one of the cans, it, op- it opened up and a-, and a million black flies flew out. And the whole factory was infested for a whole day. And there's a whole day of production downtime. And that was a costly error. They, they, did- they just didn't tell me what to look out for. So sure, it probably happened before. Yeah. Buzzing. It reminds me of, I grew up on the Isle of Wight. There's a lot of growing cherry tomatoes down there. Yeah, so we'd yeah. just be packing those and... Yeah, you you have the bare minimum training and get the job done. Well, I I think they thought, oh, he's just a kid, you know, he'll get on with it and, you know, get bored and go away, you know. Uh, They didn't invest in me. They saw me as only being casual labour, so therefore, you know. But everybody who's in part of an organisation has an important part to play, even if they're casual, I think. So that's the story behind that one. And then you write in your book about the need to learn and refer to how almost all processes start with some form of creative destruction. Mm. Could you sort of expand on that notion as well? It's a weird thing, isn't that? You know, creative destruction. Well, it sounds like an oxymoron or, or something that, you know, contradicts itself. But um, I think it was Picasso who said that, you know, to create something, you first have to destroy something. And what he meant by that was you have to mix pigments or you have to you know, move stuff around on a, on a piece of paper. You know, th- th- there's always a transformation that takes place and it can look destructive. And I think the point I was trying to make with that was that not only do we have to learn things, we also have to unlearn certain things before we can relearn other things. You know, th- for instance, you know, the... The prejudices you see at the moment, the racist and the xenophobic stuff that you see coming out of the States and the UK at the moment, all the kind of, I don't know, this kind of misplaced zeal in we are Britain or we are the US, it's all based on prejudice and that is based on bad learning. It's based on false news, you know, uh, false views, views that are prejudiced, which, which tend to divide rather than mm-hmm. unite and and that's just a classic example of stuff that we really need to unlearn before we can relearn what we need to learn 
I, I think that's really interesting because um, I had a podcast recently with, and the guest was Tara Westover. Do you know? Uh, no. She grew up in a kind of extreme Mormon environment where exactly this, she wasn't really encouraged to be schooled in any way. And so eventually she kind of persuaded her parents to let her go to a Mormon university. And then she kind of broke away and made the really painful decision to leave her family, but came and studied at Cambridge. But all of her kind of ideology really was was based around this and so she was extremely homophobic because Mm. she just you know that was just normal to her and Mm. she kind of had to do she talks about exactly this having to kind of really break down everything that's socially constructed for her and she's got kind of like a really tangential view on everything as a result a kind of candid example of how these things are built up around us, I suppose. Well, you see, the thing is, in the age of social media and, and, and communication at the speed of thought, you know, which which, yeah. which really is is the case now. Yeah. Everyone's connected to each other. I think we, we tend to gather people around us who think the same way and speak the same way and look the same way as we do. And that gives us an echo chamber effect. It, it, we, we get into a bubble like your Mormon friend did and and I think that's unhealthy I I try to gather people around me who maybe will challenge me or disagree with me as well and yeah occasionally have arguments with them because that's the best way to learn I think Hegel nailed this back in the yeah. uh, 200 years ago or more when, when he talked about you know antithesis and synthesis you know the, you know bringing together ideas through disagreement and and disruption and and yeah and and creative destruction the Hegelian dialectic brings me yep. back to my English literature days. Um, <laughs> I read a Washington Post article recently about Amazon spending $700 million mm. on reskilling uh, learners. They're actually yet to do this. Mm. Um, and one of the ladies referenced in this article was Jane Bozarth. Yeah. Um, who's also um, mentioned in your book and sounds pretty formidable about taking no prisoners in terms of <laughs> learning and development. I just wondered if yeah. you had personal experience of of what she's like and yeah if you could kind of once you've met Jane you never forget her (laughs) we we, we've shared several stages together over the years and and notably once in Brussels a couple of years back when I think both of us fell off the stage at one point (laughs) mine was deliberate really (laughs) but but in shock at what someone had said (laughs) no 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 no. No. I mean she fell off the stage accidentally and and, and I mimicked her just for just for a laugh really I I shouldn't have done it but there you go we we, we know each other quite well and we can have a good laugh we we often have a joke together Jane is is yes she is formidable she, she's got some formidable ideas about what learning should be what development should be like you know how education should should look i think she's got some great ideas because she's like me very much the the idea that the people the, the people are the center yeah the, the, the person is at the center of the learning so why should we think about it any other way this is quite interesting because it got me thinking about conferences like last week so people go to them when you're on your own you are really inspired by perhaps the sort of forward thinking things people are saying because you're in that environment of learning but then you have to kind of go back to your you know your organization and actually regaling what was said and actually trying to create change is much more difficult so do you have any kind of tips on how to then go ahead and implement some of that? Well, it's easy when you're at a conference or in a gathering of people who are like-minded to enthuse and, and to be evangelized and to be inspired. But you're right, when you go back, it's it's bumped down to earth, isn't it? Back mm-hmm. back to base and you're back in the same old environment where you've worked for the last umpteen years and suddenly things aren't as easy to enthuse about. And, and the pressures of work and the pressures of relationships and so on get on top of you. So for, for me, there are fundamental 
I think ideas one of them as i've already mentioned is is the person at the center and you know another one is to to stand up for what you believe is true and and actually stand your ground and even if you're being heavily criticized be that positive deviant be that person who makes that different idea happen in in the work be that person who is courageous and and doesn't deviate from the pathway that they know they've got to, to to step up to yeah, I got into trouble a few times when I was working at Plymouth University. Uh, you know, but it wasn't trouble in, in as much that, you know, they, they'd look at me and think, oh, he's done it again, you know, because they knew that I'd get results. Yeah. So although they would criticise me, they, they wouldn't be able to sanction me because they knew that I would get the results by doing things differently. So sort of beg forgiveness, not permission. That's exactly my mantra, yeah. It's yeah. exactly the way I worked. And and so, for instance, I, I, I took it upon myself to change the assessment <laughs> mode on, um, on one occasion. I didn't ask for permission. I didn't go through any paperwork. I didn't go through any regulations. I just changed it. And I said to the students, okay, you've got a 5,000-word assignment to write for me. I'm going to tell you that's equivalent and, and that means that you can do other things as well. So someone said, can I do a video? I said, yeah, come up and discuss with me what the equivalency would be in terms of 5,000 words and make sure that you apply the assessment criteria and we'll be fine. Someone else said, I'll do a series of podcasts. Uh, it might have been you, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and it wasn't. But, uh, and somebody else said, oh, can I do an exhibition? And I said, yeah, fine. Okay, whatever you want to be creative in it and go off and do it. Someone did a series of blogs. Others created a wiki space and got people to comment on their work. And at the end of it all, the the admin staff said to me, okay, where are all the printouts of all the assignments? I said, I'm not going to give you printouts. They said, what? But the assessment, you know, it needs, the regulations state that we need printouts of everything. I said, well, good luck printing out a video. You know, you can't do it. And they said, well, the, the external examiner is going, going to go up the wall about this. He's going to go you know, ballistic. I said, give me the phone. So I picked up the phone and spoke to him and I said, you know, um, Doug, you know, what do you feel about this? And I went through all the ideas with him and he said, brilliant idea. I applaud you for doing that. He said, break out of the mold. Let's do something different. And eventually the admin people, the professional services, they called themselves, they, they ran out of complaints. They ran out of objections and, and they had to let me do it. And now, you know, uh, across the whole university, lots of people are doing alternative assignments. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it takes somebody, I think, to stand up and, and with the conviction and the courage to actually to do something different. And, you know, I, I was down the road in my career. And, and for me, you know, what could they do to me? Could they sack me? You know, well, you know, maybe, but would I care? <laughs> you know, so, so in the end, uh, I had nothing to lose and a lot to gain. And, yeah, and it worked. Yeah. I love that. It makes me think of, uh, I always think, not that I'm relating to you to an old lady on the bus, but when, when they're kind of like there in their Nike Maxes and they're like, I just don't care. I'm going to wear whatever I want. Yeah. Don't give her monkeys. I mean, and, and I think sometimes, no. I, I think sometimes that, that is the way to be. That's the way to implement change. It, it does take just sometimes just one person mm. who is an opinion leader or someone who is senior enough to be able to get away with it. I wouldn't recommend it to everybody to do that because mm -hmm. you know some people might lose their jobs over it it does yeah, it's about yeah. context yeah on that basis is there a skills crisis or are we crap at utilizing existing talent for example female professionals and those without traditional qualifications well that's a that's a really big question isn't it i mean we talk about the divide between academia and uh, vocational training and often i think the root cause is is found in secondary school i'm not 
lambasting secondary school mm. teachers. My wife is one. I, I have a lot of friends who are secondary school teachers, but sometimes secondary education gets it wrong and they push children into academia when, in fact, maybe they should be sending them down to the local FE college to train as a bricklayer or a hairdresser or you know, somebody who, who wants to work with their hands rather mm. than work with their minds. Not every child, not every person is suited to academia. Hence, we do get a, a problem now where there's a lot of unemployed graduates in this country and other countries in the Western industrialized world. And there's also a lot of skills shortage because we haven't trained enough people up in the manual and, and the, the kind of the technical areas of of our society. So I, I think there is a skills shortage, probably because th th that's one of the reasons. Mm. I think it's more complex than that. I'm, I'm maybe distilling it down into something simplistic, but I think that's one of the reasons. And there's all these uh, inquiries. There's another inquiry announced this week about lifelong learning. And I saw someone comment that was like, we need an inquiry about why there's so many lifelong learning inquiries without an outcome. I mean, it's been talked about for so long, hasn't it? And it's sort of... I think we're a very outcome-based society um, and, and that's based on metrics, which is based on successive governments' desire to show that they are better than anybody else in the world. Uh, I mean, one of the things I I guess we could point the finger at there is PISA, you know, the the, um, the, the post-16, um, well, it's a 16-year-old. They test 16-year-olds in, in maths and, and, and in literacy at, at some point during that year and then they post those results in a national kind of uh, grading system and that's PISA, P-I-S-A, look it up. Uh, but the I've, thing in, is, I've interviewed Andrea Schleicher, so yeah. yeah. Well, uh, Andrea Schleicher is, is, is actually um, a proponent of that, isn't he? Whereas I, I'm an opponent of it mm -hmm. and, and I'd, I'd happily sit down and talk. I'd never met the guy, but I would happily sit down and talk to him about it and, and discuss this with him um, in great detail because for me, this, this sounds like... <sighs> Well, it, it's setting everybody up for failure, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are very few nations that rise to the top each year. I mean, Singapore and, and Finland have always been near the top. Singapore, their system is completely different to the Finnish system. But the thing is, Finnish teachers have a lot more freedom than, than British teachers. Mm -hmm. Singapore uh, teachers do a lot of didactic type of teaching because that's what their society requires. You know, it's a very complex area to try and unravel and to try and analyse, but... Personally, my view is that we should not be putting children through such high-stakes testing mm -hmm. at such an early age, adding stress onto stress onto stress for them and their parents and their families and the teachers in the school and the administrators to just to satisfy a government's whim on we want to be at the top of the table. And on metrics in sort of the corporate training world, what's your view on sort of where people focus on compliance versus performance and then just going back to Jane Bozarth, you know, trying to nurture that individual employee and how they may personally develop as well. Oh gosh, again, this is such a complex area because yeah, you need some compliance training. I mean, you know, things, even things like diversity training now, you know, you, yeah. th these, are, these are things that are important because people need to be informed, people need to be safe, people need to be well-versed in, in what is required of them to improve their performance but that's not the full story i mean there's so much more learning that can be done which is probably informal or personal learning as i call it rather than personalized learning mm. and it's stifled because people just haven't got the time to do it they're they're, they're constantly bombarded with regulations and and, and constantly bombarded with jumping through this hoop and that hoop it's a wonder people have got time to to do their work these days really and that's an interesting one isn't it because it's like 
the big driver seems to be productivity and that's why sort of the the training seems to get slightly sidelined by it there's a company in australia i'm trying to remember their name you can probably look it up because it's quite a well-known case but once a month they have a one single day when they say to the employees it's a software developing company they, they say to their employees you can go off and for the next eight hours create what you want the only thing that we want from you is come back and show us what you've what you've devised at the end of the day if it's nothing then fine nothing's gained nothing lost but if you find something important come and show us and they have discovered that that one day of unproductivity, if you like, has become the most productive yeah. day <laughs> in the whole of the month because these people go off and they pursue their passion rather than their compliance or their performance. And they go off and they, they pursue their passion and they look at stuff that they're really fascinated with, stuff that they're, uh, they really want to know more about. And they go off and they, 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 they find out in great detail about it. They create things. They create software fixes new apps there's a whole range of stuff that they they do which would never be on the agenda for that organization mind space to think about it is it's it's simply that and google do the same thing and so do other big uh, i suppose tech giant companies that they give their staff space headspace to go off and create and there's your creative destruction again i read your chapter on learning myths pedagogically do you think the average learning and development department is slightly behind formal education well formal could be a contentious word there but uh, <laughs> i meant schools and higher ed and so on do you know i've, I've always said that in the four sectors primary secondary tertiary and, and you know learning and development area the organizations there's there's always one that comes out in front and surprisingly it's the primary school it's, yeah. it's primary sector because there's no high stakes testing there they've got no very few risks to take so they become the most innovative of all of the uh, the four sectors in terms of the pedagogy that they so that they sad, create. isn't it? <laughs> well, well, it is because by, by the time children get into secondary school, at the end of it, they've had it all knocked out of them because it becomes very formalised. Then to use that word that you used earlier on, but uh, by the time they get into tertiary education, they're now, now being spoon fed. You know, they, they want to be spoon fed because that's what they're used to. And when they if if they leave there or, or take that route through into an organisation, they've been conditioned. I mean, Sir Ken Robinson talks about this. Stephen Heppel talks about this all the way back in history of time. You know, John Holt, you know, Paolo Freire, even Illich. Yeah, I could go on and on mentioning all these theorists from the last century as well who talked about the the problems with formal education and, and the need for unschooling and de-schooling. So if any L&D people listening in sort of say no to VAC... VAK is is well. Neil <laughs> Fleming is a lovely guy. Um, spoken to him a couple of times, but the the idea of putting people into categories and saying, "Oh, he's a visual learner, she's an audio learner," that does a disservice to all of them because what you're doing is you're robbing them of the chance to expand their repertoire. Nobody fits into one single mm. category. Um, it's been proved time and time again. Uh, you read the work of people like Catherine Eccleston and, and, and people like, I'm trying to think of the guy's name now, I, it'll come to me in a minute, people who have done the reports, the meta-studies on all of the learning styles inventories and all of the, the categorization cult, as I call it. And, and there's not a single shred of evidence that these learning styles actually exist. Yeah, Most of us are all of those and we change according to context. Now, that's a fact. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know that from personal experience because sometimes people are like, why don't you do video? And it's like, well, when I'm walking along, I don't want to kind of look at a video either. Well, I, I think we, we all have to learn to multitask in today's society. We all have to kind of do many things at once. And 
we're all different we're all unique uh, at the summer forum last week I, I showed several slides and asked people to decide what they saw in front of them and um, the first one was the, the colour blindness test we determined that in the room there were three or four different types of colour blindness including mine <laughs> we all have these these differences in our visual capabilities to begin with but then you look at the perceptual uh, capabilities that we have the final one was a Russia um, inkblot test and everyone saw something different in it 50 or 60 people in the room and they all saw something different so it just shows that we see things differently we perceive things differently how can we all be treated in the same way yeah, yeah. one size does not fit all so are there any companies that you think are being really smart about their learning and development uh, yeah, the Royal Mail, for a start. I mean, I, I mentioned this in, in, in my new book. The, the Royal Mail have actually developed with a local software company called Sponge, based up four miles up the road here, developed AR and VR, you know, augmented and virtual reality applications, which can be used on the spot. So as a postal worker is delivering a package, they come up against a problem, they can open up their app on their smartphone and see instantly without having to phone to anybody or go back for more training or to, yeah. to you know, divert their performance. They can look straight through the, the app, through the screen, and it will overlay information for them as to what to do next. This, for me, is direct learning transfer. This is situated learning. This is authentic education and training. So um, I absolutely love this example and, and, and actually I'm quite excited because so I'm interviewing the MD at Sponge and yep. they're hopefully putting me in contact with the, the Royal Mail about mm-hmm. sort of using VR with the, yep. about aggressive dogs and how to handle them. Yeah, wow, well, it's so many postal workers. <laughs> because, I mean, it's yeah. so, yeah, we, we laugh, but it, it's, it's a serious thing yeah. because, you know, you, you get an injury and you could be off work for a long time. You, you could lose a hand. Yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not, it's a serious business, you know, and, and the more we can do to, assuage that kind of problem and, and, and to obviate what they go through the better really well then you think about what sometimes they're delivering they probably think for this piece of chunk um, well yeah 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 I, I mean some of the parcels they deliver these days uh, I, I think we're sending less and less letters but mm. more and more heavy objects through mm. the mail you know amazon and, and ebay and so on all these online companies are sending out these huge parcels and of course who delivers it postal workers I don't know if you know this person's work. So um, I came across the work of David Grieber, is it? Or Graeber? Bullshit Jobs. Have you seen this? Nope. So yeah, The Guardian sort of summarised it as, is your job one that makes the world a better place? If not, it's probably bullshit, part of a system that is keeping us under control. <laughs> and this author, an academic, was on, I think it's uh, Joe Rogan's podcast. Yeah. And basically his premise is that lots of people, and especially in organisations when they get so big, are literally in a department doing a job that they've just been told to do. No one actually really knows they're doing it anymore mm-hmm. and they're just doing it because that's what they've been assigned to and it's really unfulfilling for them. And they, they know that if they didn't do it, it wouldn't make any difference <laughs> one way or yeah. another, but yeah. you know, essentially it pays their wage and... Yeah. How, what do you think about that? <laughs> it's like the uh, the Catch-22, um, uh, the, the Soldier in White. Have you read that book, Joseph Heller's book? I've read, yeah, Catch-22, yeah. Well, in Catch-22, there's a soldier and he's completely encased from head to foot in, in, in white plaster and his arms are up and his legs are up and they've got a tube running into the top of him and a tube running out from the bottom and every so often they change the tubes around. <laughs> That is gross. Yeah. <laughs> that, that is an allegory, I think, or a metaphor, if you like, for what you've just mentioned. So, yeah, I, I guess in large organisations, there are people who are doing jobs that they, they think perhaps, and maybe they are, maybe, maybe they don't actually make a difference. But I, I would contend with this guy, was it David Grieber? Is it? Yeah. I would contend with him that not all jobs 
um, have to make a difference to to mm. people, make our lives easier. I think there are aesthetic jobs, so musicians and artists, for instance, and I I have both of those kind of in my repertoire. I, I trained as a, a graphic designer and a, and a fine artist, and uh, I've also been a professional musician for seven years. So, for me, that's not making people's lives easier, but it it entertains and it and it yeah. gives and it gives them an aesthetic kind of belief in something better that you know that they can aspire to for instance so not all jobs have to make people's lives easier well, it's like the whole university debate about value and is it just about creating a job or is it you know also mm. fulfilling in that way as well yeah, and yeah. kind of wider civic value and that kind of thing so one one thing that last week also made me think is how much of sort of our discussion around learning and development still has in mind this idea of going into an office and then training being for a team that go into an office, whether that's one office or offices around the world. And, you know, for perhaps younger employees and increasingly any employee in distributed teams or working for themselves or you know, being freelancers and that kind of thing. So for those people and those employees, would you have any advice around how they can also keep themselves you know, sharp and trained and motivated. Yeah, I, it's about following your passion again, isn't it, really? It's about breaking out of the mould. It's about seeing things slightly differently to the way that you're used to seeing them. So forcing yourself into unfamiliar situations, forcing yourself almost to, to, to argue with people who you feel uncomfortable being with. You know, I've had several heated exchanges on Twitter and one or two notorious ones with, with well-known people who... Um, don't agree with my views and, and that's fine and they're, they're allowed to disagree but it's the outworking of the discussion and the mm. arguments that you have and you know scoring points off each other that that's the important thing because that gives you a broader perspective on what you what your life and what your work should really be about and it goes back to I, I do you remember second life it was about what 10 or 12 years ago it was quite popular it was a multi-user virtual environment which you could go into for free and move around it and create things and so on and they sold land off to various universities and i don't know who's in there now it's probably a ghost town but <laughs> they'd probably died to death because it was so difficult to 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 use but the thing was a lot of universities went in there and created virtual campuses and you know what they did they created buildings with ceilings and floors and walls and seats in an environment where you can force the weather into any way you want it to go. So what they were doing was perpetuating mm. the always done it this way kind of myth. Yeah. So uh, when I went in and created my multi-user virtual environment, we had an open air auditorium with massive butterflies flying around, which you could ride on. Uh, seats that you sat on and bounced they were like toadstools but they were in the air and, and we had a, a sky box where you could go up and have a private conversation you could transport teleport yourself up and so on and we did that as a as a kind of an aids hiv and aids information space and people used it because it was different it's fun as well because you could do it it was yeah. fantasy but it was also reality it was grounded in in reality it was about people talking about their health issues it was about mm. people you know wanting to have a confidential chat with an expert and people flocked to it and uh, we i think we wrote the first research paper on it back in 2007 it's still out there somewhere it's had a lot of citations because it was the first one but we we discovered a lot about you know breaking the mold there and about you know changing the status quo and, and doing something different being the positive deviant again you know so your blog's called learning with ease yeah 
I'm sure it's not a reference to the shaman and Ebenezer goods, uh, or is it? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's just a silly play on words, and I thought, well, I might as well mm. use it because before someone else does, because it sounds catchy. Yeah. And it's certainly caught on. And the book came out based on that, of course, um, about three or four years ago. Um, so, I mean, learning with ease... A lot of people have said, "Oh, it's to do with you know, you know, ecstasy or whatever." You know, but uh, no, it's it's just simply a play on words. And I think we should learn with these because we are natural born learners, and technology helps us to improve that further and extend our abilities, extend our capabilities. Andy Clark calls us natural born cyborgs, and we are. We we, we use technology as an extension mm. of our senses, and of our body and of our mind. So to learn with ease. But that doesn't belie the fact that also learning is in the struggle. So it's a balance, really. So yeah. learning with ease is fine, but l- learning also with with a struggle now and again, yeah. I think, is important. You recently wrote on a blog post called Second Chance OU50. I left school with nothing, no qualifications, not a sausage. Most of the teachers in the schools I attended, I was a forces kid and went to nine during my school years, didn't seem to care and failed to motivate me to study. I simply wasn't interested. So for our listeners, can you tell us how that story finishes? Well, there were one or two teachers there, both Americans, actually. I was An American high school was my last school in, in Holland. Dad was based in the, the Royal Air Force there. And so for two years there, although I did nothing, I was bored solid. <laughs> and, and I often just didn't go to classes because it was just, you know, I was being talked at and told to sit in a chair and, and not to move around when in fact my you know my way of learning is to move around a lot so these two teachers both inspired me because both of them turned a blind eye when I sneaked into the back of their lessons to learn one was the art teacher one was a music teacher back in them days the curriculum wasn't balanced you as a, a boy you could not do art and music you could do one or the other girls could do both boys could only do one girls could only do one science boys could do three it, it was ridiculous an outrageous uh, genderized kind of uh, environment and and I kicked against that so I, 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 I used to sit in the back of the music lessons and Larry has, as, as we call him he let us use his first name and really liberal uh, arts teacher he's uh, the arts teachers isn't it you know they're, uh, yeah, all, they're often yeah, like this yeah, though yeah, the outlet yeah, the... yeah well, well Larry was a, was a great musician and he, he used to sit me in the back he said sit in the back there you'll be fine he said I won't tell anyone and, and if someone asks me there, I, I should deny it <laughs> fine okay and he, he would he said you can't take the exams he said but you can actually take part in all of the productions so I, I did I took part in several musicals you know Fiddler on the Roof and and various other musicals that we did that Oliver I think we did and part of the the rock choir that we had there we did all the, the the latest rock songs as a choir and we played lunchtime gigs and I learned to play the guitar while I was there and it inspired me to go on and, and follow my, my dreams. But the thing is, because I left school with no formal qualifications, and then I went to art college, they accepted me on the basis that I had an art O-level. That was the only thing I went out mm-hmm. with, an art, an art GC, GCE as it was at the time. They accepted me on the basis of that. And for two years, I, I went to Herefordshire College of Art and trained as a fine artist and then as a photographer and a graphic designer. That took me into another job at a place called Marjons, which is up the hill here, uh, which is a teacher training college. And I moved back to Plymouth. And from that, I got introduced to a brand new discipline called educational technology. And it was just starting at the time. This was the 1970s the kind of mid-70s, so 75. And there were very few people involved in that area because it was such a brand new area. And at the time, we were looking at things like the emergence of video. Personal computers hadn't arrived. It wouldn't arrive for another three or four years. We were looking at things like classroom technologies. We were looking at 
things like recording and editing and, and you know projection facilities, those kind of things. And the early theory behind all that, even distance education was mm. quite new then. But at that point, you mentioned the Open University. When I was about five years, six years into that, my wife and I had met and we'd, we'd started to have children. And I thought, I'm in a dead-end job here. I'm, I'm in a technical job here, which I've got no hopes for promotion of. I've got a wife, three kids, and Plymouth Argyle to support. <laughs> and really, how They're am I... They're probably doing better then. <laughs> they, were, they were doing better then, yeah. <laughs> and the thing is, what am I going to do with my life? And so I thought, I'm going to have to go off and do something different. And, and so at that point, I started teaching the nurses. I was now, now in the NHS. I started teaching nurses how to use computers. And my, my, my boss, who was very far-sighted, she, she said, you should go off and train as a teacher. So I did an evening class for, for two years, got my cert ed, which in them days you could do before a degree. Yeah. Nowadays you do the PGC after a degree. So I did that first and I thought, I wanted to go and do a degree now. So I went off and I, I, I paid for myself to do a degree at the Open University in psychology. And they said to me, um, and ever the positive deviant, they said to me, it'll take you five years to do it. I said, I'll do it in three. They said, no, you won't. I said, yes, I will. And they said, you can't. It's impossible to do it in three years because <laughs> the, the workload is too much. I said, well, I'll show you three ways that I'll do it differently. You know? And I did. And I got a first class honours degree because I was determined. I followed my, my dream. I, I was thinking about Larry again, the music teacher. Yeah. Follow my dream. And then um, the university took interest in me and said, would you like to come and work for us? And so they said to me, um, what would you like from us? Uh, this is a research program. They said, what would you like from us? I said, I'd like to do a PhD, please. They said, welcome. And there it is. So, so uh, And from that point on, I, I was a member of the Plymouth University staff. Well, two years later, in fact, after the research program finished, uh, and I managed that research program. That was breaking new ground as well because we were setting up tele-learning centres. This was in the, um, I suppose, the, the, the mid-90s. And we were setting up tele-learning centres across the rural areas of southwest England in places where they'd never set up these things before. So we had fast internet connections and video conferencing and digital satellite mm -hmm. transmissions, all very, very new stuff in them days. And my job was to go in and set it up and then research it. And that's where most of my publications, early publications came from. Uh, and then, of course, in 98, I joined the Faculty of Education, as it was then, as a full-time lecturer. So there you are. So, so it all ended know, well. It, it's, it's a convoluted story, but... It, you know, follow your dream is 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 the. And don't let other people tell you where your your limits are. Well, I, no, I've never let people define me. Uh, I define I define myself. I am the captain of my own ship. You know, and and occasionally naval reference. Well, it is. Yeah, we're in a naval port, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and and uh, but the point is that if you steer your own, your own ship, then sometimes you're going to get into difficulty, and you need you need people around you to help you and advise you, and never never negate that. But you are the, your own destiny, mm -hmm. uh, and if you decide you want to do something, then go and do it. It is funny what you you mentioned about going into the art class because at, at my school, a lot of my friends were doing art and I'd at a different time to me so I'd go in and, and hide under the desk and the teacher would come in and he was like a family friend and he'd be like Sophie I can see you under the desk and I'd have to come back out but like was that kind of performance art was it uh, no no yeah. unfortunately not. Yeah. well I wasn't a very good uh, magician <laughs> unfortunately I wasn't hiding well enough you have a whole chapter on simulation for learning in your book which is one of the chapters I didn't make before our interview we've looked at simulation previously on the podcast in relation to surgical training empathy building and nuclear 
nuclear power plant training. But what was the chapter about? And there's a combination, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You do all not, three at not once. All in one. Not all in one. <laughs> complicated, wouldn't it? I, I think that simulation is quite an interesting idea because it puts you into the situation before you actually reach the real situation. So in effect, it, it's like rehearsal, but it's rehearsal that's kind of immersive rehearsal. And so I think one of the first things I was involved in was just across the road here, um, there's there's a big railway junction and um, sometimes you can hear the trains going by. And and the, 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 the idea behind that was that the, the, the NHS at the time were going to simulate a major disaster with all the services involved in it. So what happened was the, the NHS said to me, would you like to come over with your crew and, and record, you know, capture it all on video? I said, yeah, when is it? It's sun- Sunday morning at seven o'clock. Blinking out. Right, okay. So I, I, I got uh, an assistant with me and the two of us went over and we, we sat there and waited. And they called people out as if it was a real uh, uh, kind of um, incident. And, and the, the point being that they, they, it was a shock kind of, effect really and and what happened was they all arrived there was something like about 20 ambulances there you know 15 police cars a whole load of fire engines and when they arrived there they had the casualty u- union there and all these people were dressed up in with wounds and broken legs and things you know people screaming in agony and, and it looked quite realistic blood everywhere you know gore and all over the place and these people had to go in as if it was real yeah and actually solve the situation resolve it rescue people cut people out they had the cutting equipment there. They had an old carriage there, which they could cut up and so on. And, and I filmed the whole lot of it. Now, that was a simulation. From that, the video was used as a, as a training resource. We, we edited it down and, and created a 20-minute training resource with questions that popped up in it and so on. So, in effect, it, it had two effects because, firstly, it was a simulation. And, secondly, it was a, an archive, mm-hmm. a, an archive resource. And, and that was a very powerful thing because it, it gave people insight into things that they could and, and, and maybe shouldn't do, the micro and the macro effects of, 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 a, of a major accident. So that was one form of simulation. But there's, there's, there's so many other ways you can do this. That's interesting because I've got a recording coming up with one of the L&D leads for the NHS from a sort of overview of all the trusts, as yeah. it were. So if you were doing the recording, what questions would you ask so I can steal them? <laughs> The questions I would probably ask is, firstly, what, what do you want to achieve mm-hmm. with, with your employees? So, obviously, it's, it's to inform them of all the possible issues and problems. Safety first, obviously. Be safe yourself. Then, you know, when do you intervene? How do you intervene? What do you intervene with? Who else is involved? All, all these kind of questions, I think, are logistical questions, but they're also operational questions that that will make the difference to maybe saving someone's life Mm -hmm. but also you know there there are other issues around this like you know what do we do with the general public you know how how do we now everyone stands around like filming the thing don't they well yeah they do these days yeah in them days video was very expensive and nobody had cameras yeah so nobody had phones definitely so there's lots of questions like that you know questions around you know i'm I'm not talking just performance here i'm talking about saving lives now Mm -hmm. So that's the really important thing, isn't it? You're a keen music enthusiast, even titling some of your chapters with David Bowie references. Bowie, Bowie. What are a couple of your favourite uh, vinyl, if that's your medium of choice? Or is it more the process of digging around for good music that you love? I've got a radio show called Just Vinyl. It goes out every Wednesday and Sunday down here and also in the Midlands, I think, as well. It's got a couple of, up northeast, got a couple of syndicated versions of it. It's called Just Vinyl. Now, you know, that 
says what it says, you know, I only play vinyl. So I play stuff from the 70s and 80s mainly, maybe the 90s. I, I like a lot of stuff. I, I am a rock musician. I, I'm rock through and through. But within that, there's so many subgenres. I like blues. I like, I like um, jazz rock, actually. I mean, Brand X and Phil Collins, you know, Genesis, obviously, <laughs> were one of my inspirations. I've got everything they ever did. All the way back to the Beatles, actually, the 60s final. Genesis just reminds me of American Psycho, you know, in the, uh, he always references Genesis. Yeah, yeah well, 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 yeah, but that, that's, that's, <laughs> that's an anomaly because most people who um, like Genesis are very nice people. That's true. <laughs> I will take your word for it. <laughs> but uh, I, I also, I, I love a lot of the progressive rock, you know, people like Supertramp and, and um, I play them in the car all the time. But I, li- I like the, um, the latest stuff as well so it's, I'm into, into people like Ed Sheeran and Rihanna and some of the latest bands uh, Arcade Fire have you heard them? Yeah I've seen they're, them they're phenomenal yeah they're quite good Everyth- everything everything have you heard of them? I have heard of them but I don't get, know them get so into well. them yeah. these guys are it's kind of um in indie rock but it but it's more than that it, it's it's kind of it's it's got the zeitgeist within it you know you listen to it and, and you get a keener insight into what's going on and stormzy love stormzy's work yeah that, that his, his, performance his pretty amazing. Set at, at glastonbury was was just amazing yeah. uh, and, and i found out the other day that mark martins or urban teacher used yeah. to teach them used oh, to teach he? stormzy yeah did he really well he yeah. did a good job yeah apart from his potty mouth yeah <laughs> but anyway <laughs> now we can look pull, pull your trousers up we can yeah. overlook that yeah uh, you pull your trousers up yeah it's, we don't do that today but uh <laughs> but the the thing that i think my kids are surprised about is that is that I, I i listen to a lot of synesthesia and house stuff as well you know a lot a lot of what we used to call european dance music but now mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of synesthesia and you know chill out stuff you know so so my tastes are quite eclectic, actually. And are there any good record shops in the southwest people should know about? The, the the vinyl shop that I go to occasionally is on the on Breton side. That's the only vinyl shop that I know in the south. But normally I'd go elsewhere. So I, I I know a lovely vinyl shop up the top of the road in Sheffield. Okay. When I go to Sheffield University to work there, um, there's a vinyl record shop up near one of my favourite curry houses, and, <laughs> and I often go in there and rifle through and, and buy buy discs. Yeah, I'm, I'm a real vinyl freak. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, we'll know what present to get you next time <laughs> after your pin badge. And just finally, what's next for you? So, how, you know, first of all, if people want to connect with you, find out more, where should they go? And then what's next? Well, Steve at steve-wheeler.net is my email account. And steve-wheeler.net is also my, my professional site. But the blog site is steve-wheeler.co.uk. That's okay. that's where most of my writings appear. So I'll, I'll be doing a, a special um, blog post tomorrow for the anniversary, 50th anniversary of the moon landings, which I remember seeing as a 12-year-old. That's bonkers. So you can work out my age. <laughs> and I remember watching that, getting up at five o'clock in the morning as a 12-year-old in the Shetland Islands, of all places, <laughs> in a little croft where there was no running water. We had electricity, obviously, because we could watch television in black and white telly. And I sat up and watched the ghostly images uh, of, of uh, Neil Armstrong setting foot on the moon. And I'd already built a, a, replica, a, a replica of the um, of the Saturn V rocket, which was taller than me. Wow. What did uh, you build it out of? It's Airfix kit. And it, it cost a lot of money, I think. Yeah. You know, I had to buy it in stages. <laughs> Get it? <laughs> but, um, but the point is, these things in- inspired me. And, and so, so, you know, that, that's the kind of stuff I write about now. So that's how you get hold of me. And what's next? Well, I've got a new job, actually. I, it's only a part-time job. But, I, but I, I wanted to get back into teaching after a couple of years away. So I can announce officially that I'm about to join Marjons again, the Truro site, as a master's tutor on the research modules. And I'm looking forward to that. It's only part-time, as I say. It gives me time to do loads of other things. I've got various contracts with 
at large companies and smaller companies that I'm, I'm working with, either as a, a professional writer or as a consultant. So there's a few things on the horizon and I'll probably write a new book, uh, but I'm going to give it a, a year or so. Still lifelong learner. Always. Yeah, you, always. Know, you, you never stop learning until you, you, you've t- carried out feet first. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Steve. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. That's all for this week's episode. Thanks so much for listening in and I do hope you enjoyed and found some gems of inspiration to take away with you. Don't forget that for events you might be interested in around the world, you can go to theedtechpodcast.com forward slash events where we aim to aggregate as many as we can. And this week's featured event is the Higher Ed Summit Horizons, which takes place on the 10th of October in Paris, France. Um, And there's a special code for our listeners, which is edtech50. Uh, which allows you to get 50% off the ticket. That's all for now. Thank you for subscribing and listening and goodbye.